Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Daily Daf Differently. I'm Daniel Nevins. We're studying uh, the end of Chapter 7 of Ketubot, page uh, 77, A and B, Ayin Zayin, Ahmed Aleph, and Ahmed Bet. Uh, it's chock full of information, and so we're going to get right to work. Uh, page side A has two Mishnayot, Ha'ish shil noldubo mumin, and ve'elu shekofinu tolahotzi. The first Mishnah speaks about a person, a man, who married a woman and then developed, um, he developed some sort of blemishes. Uh, it says, We don't force him to, uh, to divorce his wife. Now that whole question, forcing a man to divorce his wife, might be surprising to you. After all, we know about divorce in general, um, that he has to say, I want to divorce my wife, because the, the Torah itself says, he should send her a book of divorce. Uh, and yet, here we have on this page several examples where a man is in fact forced to divorce his wife, and uh, and not because of things that she's done necessarily, although we'll see some cases like that, but because of his own blemishes. So the question then becomes, are we talking about blemishes that he had before they got married, in which case she should be expected to have accepted them, or ones that he developed only later. We talk about minor blemishes or great blemishes. Uh, and even in these cases, uh, in some cases, she may have known that he had a blemish and thought she could handle it, and then it turned out it was just too difficult for her. That in these cases, the rabbis say that he'd be forced uh, to divorce her. Now, the second Mishnah comes along and says, what are the uh, the actual mumim, the actual blemishes that the man has that could uh, force his wife to say, cause his wife to say, I don't want to be remain married? And so some of these are physical blemishes. Mukeshchin, he's got some sort of skin affliction. Ubal polypos, he's got some sort of um, polyps, I guess, really, some sort of growths on him. But some of them are occupational. Hamekametz, uh, which the Gemara seems to think is a person who sort of collects dog dung for a living. Vahamitzarif nechoshit, some sort of metal worker, metalsmith that's very smelly. Vahabursi, which seems to be some sort of tanner, a person who tans hides, which is also a smelly and disgusting trade that the rabbis talk about elsewhere in the Talmud. Um, and, you know, it's either whether he was doing this all along or whether he only started to do it or only developed these afflictions once they were married. Um, Rabbi Meir says, you know, even if he made a condition, said, listen, we're going to get married and you should know I collect dog dung for a living. And she says, oh, okay. Um, she's always able to say, no, that's really disgusting. I didn't realize how disgusting it was, and I can't live with this. So that's what you're, you've got for the Mishnah here. The Mishnah also tells a little story, Sidon, a story from um, Sidon in, in Lebanon. Um, there was one tanner who died, 
and he had a brother who's also a tanner. Now, I guess they didn't have any kids, so by the laws of Yibum, he's supposed to, she's supposed to marry her, her brother-in-law. Uh, and she says, look, I was willing to live with one tanner, but I'm not going to do it again. Uh, you'd think, you know, that since she accepted it once, she'll accept, accept it again. The sages say no. I was willing to do it for your brother, but not for you. Maybe the brother was special guy, or maybe she just realized that this is not the way she wants to live. Now, the Gemara was going to talk about uh, different things. What is the polypus? Maybe it has to do with bad breath. Um, and it talks about each of the other examples. But there's so much other stuff coming, I think I'm going to skip ahead. Um, in the middle of Ahmed Aleph, there's the case that Rav brings of a man who says, uh, I'm not going to give you any food and I'm not going to provide for you, which are basic obligations of a husband to a wife, according to Jewish law. And uh, Rav says, Yotzi v'yitain ketuvah. He has to divorce her and he has to give her a divorce settlement. Uh, th there's no question here of uh, that he's going to say, yes, I want to, don't want to. Uh, Rav, this is a pretty dramatic solution. And in fact, it's surprising that it's been so rare in Jewish history that people have followed Rav. Well, even at the time, they went to Rabbi Elazar and hear this thing um, said before Shmuel, and he says, wait a second, um, why don't I just uh, force him to feed the guy, I mean, to feed his wife? If the problem is that the husband refuses to feed the wife, then the solution shouldn't be to divorce her. The solution should be make him pay, make him pay his sustenance. Um, and here's really a very beautiful uh, insight. Rob says, uh, You know, no one wants to live with a snake in a basket. In other words, uh, pick up that image there. Could you imagine a big basket with a snake in it? No one wants to live in that kind of basket. And so to say to this woman, Oh, you don't need to be divorced. We'll just force your husband who doesn't want to pay for your meals. We'll force him to pay for your meals. And Rob says that's just that's just an unacceptable situation. This is a woman who's basically being um, uh, treated badly by her husband, and even if the court tells her him to treat her better, she's not going to be happy. She's not going to be safe. And so I think that that's also a very um, humane and and relevant uh, finding for family courts in our day as well. Next, the Gemara takes up the case, well, if, if we're allowed to force a man to divorce a woman because of his blemishes, is the court able to force a man to divorce his wife if she is infertile? They don't have any children together. We've got this concept that if a couple's married 10 years and they uh, haven't had children, the man is able to divorce his wife and remarry because he's got a mitzvah of of, of being fruitful and multiplying. She doesn't have that obligation. So he's allowed to divorce her. But what happens if he doesn't want to divorce her? Their marriage is infertile, but he still loves his wife. Um, can the court force him to marry, to divorce his wife? Um, so, The Gemara says, no, you don't force a man to divorce his wife if she's infertile. But we do have a different opinion. Amar Shmuel, going back to Shmuel, He says, well, if they've been married 10 years and no kids, then we do force him to divorce his wife. Let's turn to the next page, to Amud Bet, 
side B of 77, where we have this bright Tanya, Rabbi Yossi says, I had this conversation with one of the elders of Jerusalem, and he said, There's 24 different types of shechin uh, afflictions, of some sort of skin afflictions. And in all cases, having sex is hard um, for them. In other words, uh, people with these skin afflictions don't have an easy time with sexual relations. And the worst one of these afflictions is called the those who have the ratan. Ratan. So we're going to be talking a bit about the ratan. What is this? The Tanya hikiz dam v'shimesh. It tells a story. There's this guy who um, he does some bloodletting. You know that was a until fairly recently this was a common way of healing uh, illnesses of using uh, leeches or, or cutting and letting out blood. So after the bloodletting, one has sex. So if you do that right before sex, you let blood, you're going to have weak children. And if the husband and wife both uh, did bloodletting and then they had sex, then they're going to have children with this horrible affliction called the ratan. Uh, Papa has some special insight that, well, if you did bloodletting and then you ate some food and then you had sex, it'll be fine. All right, so wait a second. What is this balratan? Masimane, what, is, what are the symptoms? It describes something that sounds a little like Ebola, actually, with uh, all sorts of fluids coming out of the body and flies on the, on the person. And it sounds uh, quite unpleasant. Then it gives a description of how you can cure this. You pay, bring the, the patient to a, a beta de shesha, a, um, a marble home that has no uh, wind that goes through it, or if you can't do that, then one with very thick walls, and you sort of pour lots and lots of water over this guy. You make this sort of potion with these different leaves and things in it. And uh, finally, what's going to happen is his skull is going to be softened, and there's some sort of a worm inside his skull. I know there have been popular descriptions of maggots in the brain of living humans. I, I don't know if that's what they're talking about, but you're somehow supposed to grab this worm when it emerges and burn it, and then you can cure the guy. Now, uh, this would be interesting on its own, but then we have this story of a couple of uh, rabbis who said, understandably enough, keep your distance from people with this uh, Rahatan disease. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan made a decree, uh, don't go near the, the flies of the people of Bali Ratan. Apparently, they realized the flies, maybe these are mosquitoes, could transmit the disease, be vectors of the disease. Rabbi Zera says, don't sit there. Rabbi Elezer says, don't go to the visit. Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi said, don't eat eggs that come from that farm. Um, so all these rabbis are taking reasonable precautions to keep themselves far from this dreaded affliction which sets it up beautifully, because these were all rabbis acting reasonably. But then along comes Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, one of the greatest rabbis of that generation. And it says, He would go visit these guys, and he would, he would engage in Torah. And uh, doing so, he would quote a line from uh, Proverbs 5, 19, Something about how studying Torah is going to bring chen, 
bring uh, grace to him. If if grace comes to those who study it, will the Torah not protect me? In other words, he's got this belief that his Torah is going to protect him. Now, that's really all that's relevant to our story. The Gemara, the very last lines, we'll, we'll pick this up again. But we've now mentioned Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, and so now we get a little treat, a little piece of Agada that tells this crazy story about him. It says, when he was getting ready to die, they said to the um, angel of death, who said, maybe it was his students, maybe it was the angels in heaven, whatever, the angel of death is told to appear before uh, Yeshua ben Levi, and to do what he asks him. Zil avid go do what he asks. Azalit chazile, so the angel of death appears in front of the rabbi, who says to him, show me my place. In other words, hey, angel of death, I know what your business is. Take me to see where I'm going to live in heaven. Don't worry, it's okay. You're going to get to live in heaven. Rabbi Shua ben Levi doesn't trust the angel of death. He says, give me your knife. Right? Maybe you're going to go after me on the road. He's a little afraid of this angel of death. I, I don't blame him. And remarkably, the angel complies. Yahava nihale. He gives him his knife. Himata lahatam. So they go up to heaven. Dalye kamachavile. So the angel of death sort of picks Yoshu ben Levi up, points out his spot on the other side of the barrier, and uh, shows it to him. So what does Yoshu ben Levi do? He's not been killed by the angel of death. Um, so shavar nafalahokisa. I guess he jumps out of the angel's hands and scales over the wall and goes to his place without being killed, which is quite a trick. I would have liked to have seen it. Um, so, Nakte Bakarna de Galimi, but the angel of death isn't going to go so easily. He grabs onto his cloak and says, not so fast, buddy. He says, wait a second, I've, take, I've taken oath that I'm not coming back. I think he means to say that I'm not going to take your knife and come back and kill you, O oh angel of death. Or maybe he's just saying, I'm never coming back to you. So the Kaddish Baruch Hu intervenes. I can imagine God being sort of amused by this scene and says, um, look, he, has he ever broken his oath? Well, if he hasn't, then you can trust him. So Yeshua ben Levi gets to stay in heaven. Still, the angel's like, what about my knife? Give me my knife back. Um, look. Uh, and Rabbi Shua ben Levi doesn't want to give the angel his knife back. You know, I'm sorry, Yeshua ben Levi, you got to give him his knife back. The world needs death. And so, um, so, so now that he's entered into heaven in this dramatic fashion, Elijah appears and starts to be his tour guide. And his machriz was making statements in front of him. Panu makom lebar Levi, make way for the son of the Levite, because his name is Yoshua ben Levi, the son of the Levite. Uh, so this is quite dramatic. Uh, Elijah guiding and making way for him in heaven. Well, he goes and he finds one of the great rabbis, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, Rashbi. So Ashkechel Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, dahava yativ atlatasar taktekei pisa. Uh, he's sitting on some sort of a throne. 
I know, golden throne, according to the commentaries, with maybe 13 steps or 13 levels. Anyway, it's pretty impressive. Rashbi's up there on the throne, and uh, Rashbi sees the newcomer and says, Atu bar Levi, are you the son of the Levite? Is that you, Yoshu ben Levi? Amar Lehain, he says, that's me. Well, Rashbi's not um, uh, going to let that just pass, not going to let him get in so easily. So he says to Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Nirata keshet v'yamecha, have you ever seen a rainbow in your life? That's a weird question, but let's think about it. The rainbow is a sign of protection that God gives to the world. And Rashbi seems to be saying that if the world is threatened, then the rainbow appears as a shield. But if there is a tzaddik in the world, then there will never be a rainbow seen during his lifetime. The tzaddik protects the world. This is based on many, many concepts in Jewish mysticism, starting in the Talmud. Um, so his question is a challenge. He's really saying, are you a real tzaddik? Um, and he asks in this coded way, have you ever seen a rainbow? And Yeshua ben Levi says, yeah, I've seen a rainbow. Um, in which case, Rashbi says, then you're no tzaddik. But the Gemara is quick to say it's not true. He, there had not been a rainbow in Rabbi Shua ben Levi's life. It's just that he was trying not to um, be a Schwitzer. You know, he was trying not to make too much claims about himself. And so, really, he was, in fact, a tzaddik Amor, a complete uh, tzaddik. Now, having told this story, uh, the Gemara then tells a very similar story um, about Rabbi Chenina Bar Papa, Shushvine Hava, who is his friend. Now, the Gemara is not clear about this. Whose friend? Was he Rabbi Shua ben Levi's friend? Or, as uh, one of the commentaries says, was he, in fact, the angel of death's friend? I love that idea, this, this great rabbi hanging out with the angel of death. I think it's more likely he's Rabbi Shua ben Levi's friend. Anyway, um, when he was getting ready to die, uh, same deal. They said to the angel of death, go do what, he, what the rabbi tells you to do. He goes and appears. He says to him, uh, uh, give me, oh, this is a nice part, Rabbi Hanina says, you know, angel of death, I'm sorry to keep you waiting, but give me a month, I want to um, go over my Torah learning, and that way when I go to heaven, you know, I'll be with my Torah accompanying me, because we say, you know, happy is a man who gets to heaven with all of his Torah intact. So the angel of death says, no deal, no problem, Shvake, he leaves him alone, and 30 days later reappears. Um, he says, uh, show me my place. So Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa wants to know where he's going to get to sit in heaven. He says, don't worry, it's going to be fine, angel of death. He says, hagli sakinach. And so Hanina says to the angel, give me your knife. Dilma mabatat li ba'orach, lest you want me on the way. In other words, you're going to kill me off. So the angel of death learned his lesson. He says, Are you going to do what your friend did to me? Which I think supports the idea that this is Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi's friend. And Rabbi Chanita doesn't answer him directly. He just says, you know, like, show me a Sefer Torah. Is there any mitzvah here that I haven't fulfilled? In other words, I deserve special treatment. Um, the angel of death says, oh yeah? Um, have you, in fact, gone and visited people with Radhan, with this horrible illness, and still involved yourself in Torah? In other words, I'm not sure that you're as great as the other guy. Nevertheless, when he died, um, um, Rabbi Chimim Bar Papa, when he dies, gets this special treatment, which is also told about in other places in the Talmud, this pillar of fire goes and blows, you know, shows up above his body. 
Ugmiri de Lamafsi Kamuda de Nura El Vachad Badara, all the train Badara. And in fact, this kind of special treatment, this um, this honor guard of flame, only appears once in a generation, maybe twice in a generation. Uh, now his students are sort of alarmed. They want to bury their master. Um, so Kari of the Gabi, Rabbi Alexandre, um, Rabbi Alexandre comes and says, hey, let, you know, flame, please back off so I can do this, so I can take care of the sages. But the, uh, the flame didn't move. And he says, well, let me do it for the sake of your father's glory. You know, your father doesn't want his son's body just lying there. Hey, flame, hey, Rabbi Hanin, send your flame away. But the flame didn't go away. And so finally the student says, Look, Rabbi, I want to do this for your glory, for your own honor. Um, please move. And so it is talak, the, the flame went up and it left him alone. So um and so why was there this flame? Abai says it was to try to separate the tzaddik from the lesser practitioners of Torah who maybe hadn't fulfilled uh, even one letter of the Torah. Um, uh, or maybe it was saying that um, that this was himself, it was a negative about him because he didn't have a, he didn't fulfill one mitzvah of the Torah. And what would that be? Maybe he didn't have a, uh, a parapet on his roof. He said, wait a second, he did have a parapet on his roof. It's just the big wind came and knocked it over. Anyway, we've got that long story about Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa going to heaven and happy him. He gets to be up there um, although we don't have the same story as we have with Rabbi Shubin Levi from jumping into heaven. The very last lines of this parak uh, are in the name of Rabbi Hanina. Um, he says, Now, it connects the Rabbi Hanina story back to this Ra'atan. It says, why is it that we in Babylonia don't get this terrible affliction? It's because... Uh, we eat, I guess, spinach. We at least tear it as spinach in modern Hebrew. It's some sort of vegetable, and we also drink some sort of sheikhar, some sort of beer of hisme from some special water, and that way we don't get this terrible affliction. Rabbi Yochanan has a different uh, uh, statement. Why is it that we don't get the affliction of tzara'at, of of uh, leprosy in Bavel? Again, because we eat our spinach and we drink our beer and we swim in the waters of the Euphrates. So I guess we've now discovered how to avoid these skin afflictions and how to um, have a healthy and happy life, which is to drink beer, eat spinach, and swim in the Euphrates River. Maybe that's not the best idea today. We now conclude Perak Shvi'i Hadran Alach Hamadir et Ishto. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.